Well, thank you guys for gathering with us here on this Lord's Day. Uh, my name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission. And so on behalf of those of us who call Mission Church home, whether you're in person today or watching on Facebook Live, thank you guys for gathering with us today. Uh, today we're going to continue through our Exodus sermon series, looking at the first half of Exodus chapter 16. And so if you'd be so kind to grab your Bible, grab a device, if you didn't own a Bible or have a Bible, and then please reach out in front of you, there should be a black ESV Bible somewhere located near to you. If you don't own a Bible, then please take that Bible as a gift from Mission Church uh, to you today. Uh, man, I love you guys. I'm excited about today, excited about what the Lord is doing in our midst and what the Lord has called us to here at Mission Church to be a part of and engaging in His mission. And so uh, while I'm preaching today, I will simultaneously be praying for you. I ask that you would do the same and that you would also pray for those uh, around us as well, that the Lord would speak into hearts, that he would do the transforming on this day and every day uh, henceforth. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me uh, to the book of Exodus. It should be the second book inside of the Old Testament. So it goes Genesis, then Exodus chapter 16. Uh, we're going to read about the first 22 verses uh, here today. All right. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling and you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning 
you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with the omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I love to eat. Um, I grew up in a home where a lot of celebrations took place across a table. Uh, our home was constantly filled with my friends and my sister's friends and church folk and neighborhood kids. Mom always had something uh, ready for us to eat. Um, I grew up cooking alongside of my mom, and even over the last year, um, though I've enjoyed cooking my entire life with COVID, and because of our son's special needs, his needs keep us at home a lot. We'd love to be going and adventuring and all these sorts of things, but because of Cash's illness, it keeps us at home, and then COVID on top of it, there wasn't much that we could do. And so Laura and I have spent the last year like taking our cooking, no matter what Pastor Justin said in the intro today that we don't know how to do it, up several notches. Um, during COVID. And so I've brought, you know, um, a smoker and I've upgraded my smoker. I've uh, enjoyed grilling and, and Laura um, has been cooking. So yesterday in preparation for Ben's graduation party today, we got up really early. I was smoking uh, Boston Butts Go Barbecue. Um, and she was making pastries all day, homemade, homemade chocolate chip cookies, um, she made these strawberry bars, and so all day until we went to graduation last night, we, we spent our day in the kitchen together. And so our home is often filled with these sorts of things, but, but let me tell you why I love to cook so much. It's because I love to eat more, and I love to eat good food. You can call me a foodie, that's fine. You can call me a food snob, that's fine. I just know what's good, all right? I enjoy eating. Um, if it was a sport, and I'm not talking about that gross thing where they're slamming hot dogs. That's, that's just disgusting. That's not a sport. All right? But if it was a sport, then, then I would be the goat. All right? I mean, I just really 
enjoy a good, good meal. Well, today, inside of this passage, we're going to see the Israelites who are in the midst of the wilderness, and what happens every few hours, or Eric Baker at 15, it was constantly happening, is that they were hungry. Maybe you're always hungry. Maybe you've never experienced starvation, or, or maybe you've just become a little bit depressed because you went to the pantry that's full of food. I know none of you have ever done this, but I have. You've gone to the pantry because you are so hungry only to be emotionally traumatized because there just wasn't anything in there that you particularly wanted. So you huff and you puff, and you go back to your room or wherever you're, you're at. Become disappointed or depressed because you have cabinets and refrigerators full of food, but we don't have anything to eat. You never heard that from a kid, have you? Inside of this story from Exodus chapter 16, we, we see much of the Israelites who left Egypt having plundered all of Egypt of its gold, its silver, its livestock, get four weeks out from slavery and bondage. They have seen the Red Sea split. They have walked on dry ground. They have sang with Moses, Miriam, and the tamarind, of course, in the shape of an ichthus fish, pounding the tamarind and the drums as they sing worship and honor to God, only to get to what Pastor Justin preached the last week, is that we don't have anything to drink. And yet the Lord blesses. He gives them something to drink. They, they hang out at an oasis for quite some time. And again, a few weeks has now passed and they find themselves in this place. If you look at the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus, what you'll clearly see is an image that we talked about over and over again about the salvation and the plan of salvation in our lives. We are slaves to sin. As the Israelites were slave, physical slaves to Pharaoh, we are slaves to sin. We are in need of a deliverer. We cannot rescue ourselves. Jesus comes, the ultimate and true and better Moses, and, and through God's incarnation, through His Son, He is our Savior and He is our Lord. Now, it seems like at the end of that, about chapter 15, when they're all singing praise and worship songs, that Jesus would just come back or that he would just come or just hoover up all the Israelites. All right, it's done deal. Wrap it up with a nice bow. Let's go be in heaven. But that's not what God does. There are several chapters left inside of Exodus, and there are many more thousands upon thousands of years that have taken place since that moment. And the question becomes is why? Why? In 16, we kind of see a change of purpose that will, again, last for most, if not all, the rest of the book. We see God moving from this plan of salvation to what does the Christian life look like? We call this sanctification, being like Christ, following after Jesus. We're going to focus on this idea of being sanctified, of being set apart. How are the people going to live and obey as, as they now follow after God, as they follow Jesus. Well, what do we see take place? Inside of 16, 
After God has given them this oasis to chill out for a little while and have some good drink for the next few weeks, we, we see that God is continuing on in their journey. And immediately, what do the people start doing? The people start grumbling against what is taking place. Now, inside the Hebrew language, when you look at the term grumbling there, um, this is not just a, a respectful voicing of one's displeasure or complaint. Inside of our home and in the home I grew up in and then what we've tried to establish at our house is that you have a right to disagree in our home. You have a, a right to even voice your opinion as long as that is done so in a respectful manner. As soon as you go disrespectful, it's over. But you are free to voice displeasure here as long as it again is, is done in a respectful manner toward the person who is in authority. But the Hebrew word here for the term grumbling is, is not that kind of grumbling. It literally means the displeasure or complaint. It, it means to, have, um, to be obstinate, to be stubborn. It means open rebellion. There's a mutiny on hand for Moses and Aaron. As the, the people are trying to rise up because they are in such a place of, man, we're hungry even though they're surrounded by animals. Is that we're hungry. We need something to eat. And so they begin to build an obstinate, stubborn rebellion against God's earthly men and leaders that we'll learn to come, that there's much more to that. We often grumble, not because of what we don't have, but rather because we don't have what we want to have. Or we grumble and complain because we don't have what someone else has. Inside of this passage, immediately in their grumbling and rebellion, what do they go back to? Life sure was great in Egypt. Do you know anybody that's got selective memory? Got any friends like that? Are you married to them? Don't look at them. Don't do it. They've got selective memory. Right? The Israelites have selected memory. I mean, think about this. They have no freedom. They're in complete bondage. They're being whipped for 430 years. Their king, Pharaoh, has killed all of the firstborn by drowning them, by, by throwing them into the Nile. They had to, 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 to every you know, crumb that they could possibly gather to eat and to feed their families. Even as, as God was beginning this process of the Exodus, what does Pharaoh do? He, he, he calls them lazy and even makes them go and get their own straw for the making of bricks. These people were in a dire situation. Like you and I have never been in such a bad place as the Israelites were in Egypt. And yet, four weeks into this journey to the promised land, with all that they have seen through the plagues and through the splitting of the Red Sea, four weeks into this journey, they're complaining, they're grumbling, they're whining, and thinking about how good that slavery was. We sat around with pots of meat. We had bread, everything that we wanted. And then what do they do? You, Moses, you have brought us out here to die. Oftentimes when we begin to 
grumble and complain about our circumstances or believing that the good old days were better days. Just because you had some good old days don't mean that they were good old days for everyone. And in this moment, our, our tendency is to do what? It is to grumble, complain, rebel against others. Maybe it's our leaders. Maybe it's your pastors. Maybe it's your bosses. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your parents. When we don't get what we ultimately want, we have a tendency to grumble and complain against people. And yet, what does this Bible tell us about this particular grumbling against God's leadership? Is that ultimately, that when you and I grumble against faithful leaders, we're actually grumbling against God. I mean, think about the charge against Moses here. You're a murderer. You've tricked us. You have led us out here to perish, to starve to death. I had the opportunity in college to go to Auschwitz, one of the Holocaust camps. And like you've probably seen inside of your history books or on some sort of documentary on the History Channel, the starvation that ensued in these people is overwhelming to see this. And they're grumbling, complaining against Moses that he has led them out there to starve to death. I can think of uh, a very few worse ways to die than to starve to death. And this is the complaint against Moses. See, discontentment leads to resentment, which leads to rebellion and disillusionment. One of the commentators put it this way, in a strange way, Egypt had become Eden. A ghetto can become a garden, or so it seems. Pharaoh can become the nice guy and the life giver, while Moses can become a villain and a life taker. A complaining, grumbling, overtly cynical, and even critical attitude reveals something way more than just what is coming out of your mouth. The Bible that we're going to see inside of the book of Exodus today and some other places as well is that our, our continual complaining, grumbling, over-cynical, critical attitude reveals ultimately the condition of our hearts. It reveals our affections. It reveals our motives. And ultimately, as we're going to see, that it reveals a problem in our relationship with God. So what does God do? Well, the Bible tells us that He hears over four times in chapter 16 that He hears the grumbling of the people. That he hears them complaining ultimately against him. Why? Why are you persecuting me? As Jesus would say in the New Testament, when people would come against his church, he would equate it to them coming against him. 
Why are you coming against me? He hears this over and over. He's lavished upon lavish. And, and as we sang earlier this morning, that his mercy is more, that you and I need to pay careful attention to the mercy of God inside of this passage. Because after hearing it over and over and over and over and over again, the Bible tells us in this passage, he does this. First is that he creates a purpose. Who has led them to the wilderness? God has. Who is going to lead them to the promised land? Well, God is. And who is going to lead them even to this moment of hunger? God is. That God inside of Exodus 16 is revealing that, that God has a purpose. He even tells us what that purpose is. He tells Moses, here's what I'm, here's what I'm about to do. And I'm doing this to what? To test them on whether or not they will obey my law or not. Will they obey my word? Will they obey me? Will they follow my commands? Even this has a purpose for God's glory and to test His people on whether or not they will truly follow after Him. We see inside of these verses as, as well, from verses 4 to 8, that God promises, right? He comes to Moses and he says, all right, these people are hungry. Here, here's what I'm going to do, Moses, is that I'm going to send them some bread from heaven. I'm going to send them bread from heaven. All they got to do is every day is gather enough for their family. Don't gather enough for tomorrow. Just gather enough for today. If you're one man, get enough for one man to eat. If you have an entire family, then you get enough for your family. But don't get more for tomorrow. Give us our daily bread. This is the command. This is what God provides. So he first promises that. He says, this is what I'm going to do. There's going to be quail. All right? Quail just everywhere. Like it's not even going you to, you're not even going to have to go to power lines, Pastor Todd, to shoot them off. Which causes people to lose electricity inside of Bowling Green and Warren County every September. There's an amen. That is very true. It happens every season. Because jokers don't want to hunt for them. They just want to see them landing on power lines and shoot them off. Splitting jacking up your electricity and internet and all those fun things. But what is God going to do? He says this, I'm going to rain down, and I know some of you are like bird scared, scared of birds, but like you're going you're gonna to go this tonight and there's going to be quail everywhere. And all you got to do is scoop them up and take them home and cook them. Grilled, preferably, after being marinated for quite some time. But in the morning, when the dew comes and the dew begins to dry up, there is going to be bread everywhere. And they're going to ask the question eventually, what is it? Which is where we get the word manna. How many of you guys have ever heard that before? That God sent manna from heaven. In the Hebrew, do you know what manna means? What? It means, what is it? And the thing is, none of us really know. There's going to get some more description into that next week. But essentially, I think the easiest way for us to understand is that God is saying, I'm going to send substance to you. I'm going to send something. I'm, I'm promising you this. This is what's going to happen. And then what does God do inside of Exodus chapter 16 is that he actually does that. He sends what he promised. 
He promises the quail comes. They go to sleep, they wake up the next day, and there's frosted flakes everywhere. And they just go out. And they scoop up. And they gather what God has provided. We see in Exodus chapter 16 these three things. That God has this purpose for them. That God makes these promises. But then that He is good on His promises. Now again, next week we're going to get into the whole idea of the testing and obedience and disobedience. Will they follow God's law or will they not follow God's law? What I want to focus on today is the simple provision, or the, the not simple, it's, it's heavenly, provision. Notice that this provision is not man-made. That it comes from God. And it comes to people who are really undeserving. I don't know if you've been a parent long enough, for those of you who are a parent, but one of the things that can be most frustrating inside of parenting is uh, a child that doesn't appreciate all that you do for them. Right? And what is our typical response, parents, when your child is unappreciative? Well, I'll show you. You didn't like what I gave you or all that I'm doing for you? Our, our tendency, was one of my personal preferences, is then I will show you by not giving you anything. I'll show you what it's like when I'm removed from the equation. This isn't how God is. As an overarching in this story, there are times that he does refrain and he holds back, okay? So parents, don't send me your emails. There are other... Other things where, yes, he, he does hold back. But notice what he does here at the beginning of, of this kind of new movement within the history of Christianity. Is he is overtly gracious to them. I mean, overtly merciful to them. I mean, they deserve for God's mighty hand just to I mean, wipe them off the face of the earth. It's been four weeks. They're surrounded by gold and silver and jewels and probably hundreds, if not thousands of cattle. We don't know how much grain they have, all these sorts of things, but they're complaining about their bellies. They're hungry. Mm, I don't like what you're making. I don't like filet. I'll take ramen. Mm. Okay. That's not a real life illustration. They're complaining, and yet what does God do? He hears their complaining. He hears it. And He lavishes grace upon grace to them. He gives them what they do not deserve. They're grumbling, complaining in the wilderness. God hears them. God purposes to them. He promises to them, and then He provides for them. Almost every time that we, pre we preach inside of the book of Exodus, you'll notice that we easily jump from Exodus to somewhere in the New Testament. Why? Because once again, mission folks, if you are reading and want to be a good student of the Bible, the greatest commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament. And we see this, and so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me because this, this passage directly corresponds to one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. 
you have your Bibles, turn with me to John. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. So inside the New Testament, if you're new to the Bible, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. All right, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Inside John chapter 6, if you look at your Bible, you'll notice that there are headings there. At the very beginning of John chapter 6, it'll say something like, Jesus fed the multitude, or Jesus fed the 5,000, right? This is when Jesus is out in the wilderness. See if you can make the connections here. He's out in the wilderness, and these people are listening to him preach all day, mind you. And it just so happens that it is another celebration for the, the Israelites called Passover. Now, I can't go into Passover today. We've preached a lot of that over the last few weeks. So it's Passover. It's, starting to, it's time for now the Passover meal. And these thousands upon thousands, it's believed that only 5,000 of those were counting the men. So it's not counting the women and children. It's, it's guesstimated that there could have been easily upwards to 20-something thousand people on the side of the hill. All right, This is Woodstock for Jesus. He's preaching. Probably ain't got no music. Just preaching. Jesus is preaching these sorts of things. It's starting to, to come to the end of the day. It's time for the Passover meal. And Jesus, what's he do? He, he, he multiplies some fish. He multiplies some bread. He feeds everyone. And there, there is multiplication taking place. As these, these people are all sitting back with their, with their bellies full. Now, who are these people? They're poor. They are oppressed. They're, they're in the wilderness. They're following him wherever he goes. This is the potential Messiah. He's doing these miraculous signs and wonders. He's healing people. He speaks with an authority like they have never heard from any of the other prophets. But there's something mysterious and, and, and drawing about this Jesus. Jesus multiplies all this stuff. He feeds their belly, and then he's like... I got to get away from these people. So he tells his disciples, all right, you go this way across the lake and I'm going to go up here and to pray, right? So in chapter six, we, we see that the next section that, that in the middle of the night, there's this big storm or the, the disciples are going across and, and all of a sudden Jesus starts coming across the water. He's walking on it, right? And they're like thinking that, that, that this guy's a ghost. He calls out Peter eventually, walk on the water with me. And then he starts walking and the waves start coming because Peter stops looking at Jesus. Then the next morning, guess what happens? They show up on the other side of the lake. And all of those people have guesstimated where Jesus is going to land. And so in the middle of the night, this huge mob and mass of people moved to the other side of the lake as Jesus was trying to continue his ministry elsewhere. And he gets off the boat and he goes into Capernaum. And guess who's there? All those people. So let's begin reading in verse 22. It says this. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side, excuse me, let's go, uh, let's go on down to 25 for time. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Right. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your full fill of the loaves. 
Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man, excuse me, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not, never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do the, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say that I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who has sent him draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your father ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came from down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of this flesh and the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is the true blood, and my blood is the true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. 
There's almost a correct or, or direct, or there is a direct parallel, but it's almost kind of chapter and verse, line by line. You can see this connection that happened thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years ago. And as Jesus, the incarnated one, the bread from heaven that was sent through God's purpose, through his promise and his provision to come and to save someone, Jesus steps onto the scene of these people who had just had all of their bellies filled up. And yet, when Jesus gets out of the side of the lake and he's preaching in Capernaum in the synagogues, what does he do? He reveals their hearts. He reveals their motives. Jesus will say, man, you, you come to me. You come to me. You come to the church. You come to these sorts of things, not because you really want me, but ultimately you're coming to me because you've got your belly full of the food that I made yesterday. Jesus will say inside of this passage that it's one of the seven I am statements inside of the Gospel of John. In this, he says, I am the bread of life. In that original language, now we're in Greek inside the New Testament, Jesus is, is using the Old Testament language that we talked about in the name of God, Yahweh, which is, I am that I am. Literally inside the Greek New Testament, when you were to read it, it would read like this, I am that I am the bread of life. What is Jesus automatically equating himself? He's saying to the people in the Old Testament, we sent down physical bread, but in this moment in time, we're not sending physical bread for you to eat, but from heaven, we are sending ourselves. We are singing the Godhead. We are sending Jesus to be the bread of life for these people. Now, did you notice when Jesus reveals their heart, they automatically begin to question well, well, okay, Jesus, well, well, what must we do to get this food? What must we do to get this food? Now, it's important for us to understand, as historians and theologians will tell you, that during this period of time, that, that these people's paychecks, 85% of them went to food. 85% of all of the income that they have went to food. Now, I don't know anybody in here that spends 85% of your income on food. In America, we spend 85% of our income probably on debt in some form or fashion. A house, a car, right? Food is expensive. We can spend a lot on food. There's no doubt about that, but we're not spending 85% of our income on food. In this period of time, every time you're laboring and you're working, I mean, you're essentially, it's from hand to mouth eating. You eat breakfast and then you got to figure out, I got to make enough money to eat lunch. Then I've got to make enough money to make sure that we have dinner upon the table. And so when Jesus goes out into the middle of the wilderness and he's preaching this way and he feeds their belly, guess what they just got back? 85% of all of their financial income. So of course they're going to meet Jesus on the other side. If you got 85% of your income back every time you got paid, how would that be? Wouldn't that change your life? 
These people, they have 85% of their money, and so it's, it's free food, men's more money inside their pockets to do whatever they want to with. Why? Because there's this guy, and he's out in the middle of the wilderness, and he can just bippity-boppity-boo, and you got bread. Let's hang out with him and keep our pockets full of money. And yet Jesus responds by saying, here's the deal. I didn't come here to be the bread in a physical sense. I didn't come to just to, to, to make this you know, genie in this bottle to, to make sure that your bellies are always full. I came to, to, to spiritually be the bread. You must consume me. You must consume me. I mean, one of the tests of true faith inside of Exodus and inside of John, this letter here, is that John 6 will ask the question, what are you eating? If you're trying to lose weight, the first thing that every dietitian will tell you is, I want you to write down everything that you put in your mouth for a day. That's why we don't do that. Because if you've ever tried it, you'll make it like half a day and you're like, this is terrible. I ate four Skittles, five sticks of gum, whole box of Swiss rolls. Is that just me? That was with my coffee. Lots of creamer. Jesus is asking the question, is like, I mean, if you if you really want to have life, then then what are you eating? What are you looking for in, for fulfillment in the most? If I only had this, Pastor Eric, I would really be happy. What is the source of life, which is what this bread ultimately represents? It's not just, don't just get singular focus that, that Jesus is just talking about bread. He's, he's talking about what actually gives you life. And yes, for in the story of Exodus chapter 16, those people were hungry. They needed physical food. But the metaphor and what God was trying to do then and then ultimately fulfilled in Jesus was getting out something much deeper. It's asking the question, man, what is sustaining your life? What is the source of your life? What are you consuming on a daily basis that reflects and illustrates that you are in the, in the, in the infinite game, an eternal game, that your focus is on eternity, not just in this moment? In creation, we were made to eat. Can I get an amen? I mean, we're Baptist. We're good at potlucks. We eat in MCs for a reason. The scripture is filled with people eating. It's a good thing, but it often becomes a God thing. In the promised land, there are provisions for God, from God. Therefore, it, it, it has its place. Physical eating has its place for us. But again, the, 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 the thing that Jesus is ultimately trying to get at and that Exodus is pointing to is that there is something in your soul, that there is a soul food that is much deeper and much greater. Why? Because Jesus is going to say, I mean, they're, they're, they're like, okay, all right, Jesus, now you fed our bellies. And then Jesus is having this conversation with them, right? And, and they're like, oh, oh, yeah, we know how to get him back on track here. Well, you know, Jesus, in Exodus chapter 16, God gave us bread. Why don't you work up some more bread and uh, 
we'll know that you're the guy. And then Jesus drops a truth bomb on, right? Hey, those people who ate that physical bread, guess what they did? They died. See, brothers and sisters, there's this statistic that all of us can guarantee that is 100% correct, and that is this. Every one of us are going to die. Not all of us are going to live eternally in a right relationship with God. Real talk. There are people whom Jesus has saved that are going to physically starve to death today. Do you get that? There are people who will be in heaven. And how they got there was they starved to death. This is close to home. During COVID, Laura and I, we couldn't get cash to eat for like four months. He's still struggling with it. His little body is frail and grotesque. It's weird to watch somebody you can't get to eat. Frail. His big old knotty knees. His, his skin is almost like translucent. It's like you can see all of the veins and everything in his body. His little hip bones stick out. Most of the world are fighting to eat real physical food today. You got no refrigeration, no pantries full of rice and And Jesus has saved them just as much as he has saved some of us. And, and they're going to die of physical salvation. However, they're going to eat forever in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, I didn't ultimately come to do all of these tricks. Some of you are going to be in wheelchairs as, as you enter into the kingdom of God and, and then be, be healed where you're in the presence of God. But, but some of you are going to have many trials and tribulations. We're going to get cancer. We're going to have limps. We're going to have disabilities. We're going to get diabetes. We're going to have all of these sorts of things, heart disease. When my buddy, he's a pastor, actually a non-pastor in uh, Smyrna, Tennessee. He texted me yesterday and he said, man, please be on prayer for our church. A 38-year-old dad who was in training to become one of our elders just died in the drive-thru of a restaurant on his way to his family's camping vacation. 38. People whom God loved, these people are going to die. I mean, think of Lazarus. Poor dude had to die twice. Jesus didn't come just to give us all of this stuff, but Jesus came and playing the infinite game. Jesus came playing the eternal game. Yes, his eye is on the sparrow. Yes, he will provide for you. You may not be eating, you know, filet every night. It may be some rice. It may be some ramen noodles, but the Lord is providing. And that's, again, uh, one of the reasons why we should be so devoted to the local churches. One of the ways that God provides for our physical needs is by participating and being in true community within the church. 
please don't miss it as they missed it, as the Israelites missed it, as, as the people inside the New Testament, they missed what Jesus had ultimately come from. And that's that those people died. And Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. Consume me. Devour me. Be in relationship with me. Be devoted to me. And in the end, there will never be the end. You will never hunger. You will never thirst again. Jesus reveals their motive for why they're asking. It's their money. It's their bellies. It's the earliest form of the prosperity gospel. Jesus isn't just, the prosperity gospel, brothers and sisters, is not always a man like who drove like a jet, rode in a jet to get to the sermon that morning. In his nice suit, asking you to bring up money and to lay it on the altar so that he can rub his anointed feet all over it. So when you go back to your, your place of living, however good or bad is, because the pastor's feet danced, this is all real stuff, dance all over it and blessed it, that you'll go home and, and be just given this bountiful amount of money. That, that is the prosperity gospel, but you and I can fall into the trap of prosperity gospel all the time. We want something from Jesus when, when Jesus is all about where you're going. He, he cares about you right now. He sees you. He's walking with you. You're not listening. He is gentle and lonely. He is running to you in every moment. But it's the end game that Jesus is most excited about, and that's the eternal game of life. Jesus, people came to Jesus because they wanted their earthly life to be better. Anybody guilty? Anybody? You know why I hate this passage? Because I'm the Israelites. I want my life to be better. I want Jesus to be my meal ticket. In Niger, Africa, where a lot of us do ministry and have partners there on the mission field, our, our, my buddy Mark Phillips, our friend Mark and Parker Phillips, all their kids, their missionaries there, and sadly, there's a testimony of a young, uh, not a young, he's a really old man. I don't think he has any teeth. And he came to Christ several, several years ago. He's been following Mark and all these people. And, and it hasn't been too long where they have had to remove him from fellowship. And here's the reason why. Is that ultimately he wasn't converted. And he was going around telling groups of people when they were supposed to be evangelizing, hey, if you'll come follow these white people from America, these Christians, you can get stuff from them. Now immediately, we go like, what? I can't believe somebody would do that. Let's not be arrogant. Let's not be arrogant this morning. You and I often do those very same things. What must I do to get the blessing? 
Man, if I just say enough prayers, read enough Christian books, sing enough songs, if I volunteer just enough at church, all these sorts of things, then, then I'll, I'll get this blessing. I mean, I, I, I need money. I, I want money. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do these things for Jesus, and then he's going to give me some money. Man, I, I'm going to come to Jesus. I'm going to be in church. We're going to have a church wedding. We're going to grow up in church, all these sorts of things. Why? Because I ultimately want a good marriage. And if I want a good marriage, then I, man, I've got to be around Jesus kind of people. Man, I want a boyfriend. So I'm going to go to church. I really want a boyfriend. I'm tired of being single. And so, man, if I just go to church and I th- jump through all of these loops, then, then guess what's going to happen? I'm going to get a boyfriend. Maybe you come to Jesus or you came here this morning because, man, you're like, man, I just want people to think really highly of me. Maybe you said this, well, we've got kids now. I guess it's time to go back to church. Not really because you want your kids to have Jesus, but you want them to be indoctrinated in how to live right. I want them to be taught good. Jesus, I know that that can be hard. It was hard for them to hear. The Bible tells us that in chapter 6. But isn't it true of us? How does Jesus respond to all of this? Jesus responds and says, They ate and they eventually still died. Jesus connects physical food to spiritual food. He's saying that what food does for the body is what I do for your soul. I give the bread, the source of life, that is the only thing that will last. Jesus Jesus says, I am the bread of eternal life. Like manna, Jesus is sent from heaven to a grumbling, rebellious, and wandering people. And yet he lavishly puts mercy and grace upon them, even to the point of the cross. Is it possible, brothers and sisters, that many of us in America are are living morbidly obese on the things of this world while spiritually starving to death? I made the mistake one time of watching 600-pound life. And I could barely make it through it. And this isn't in any way to slight people who struggle with their weight. Because as I'm watching this, I'm often wondering, one, it's an issue for myself. I mean, food is my drug of choice. Comfort. Make you numb. I mean, I'm about to eat so many pastries today after church that I... I, I probably should be ashamed. See, because we can see their issue. It's physical, isn't it? It's on the outside. We all know how someone gets that overweight. Usually they have some sort of trauma in their life some sort of issue, depression, stress, some sort of abuse, something that just really bad happening, and and they just begin to, again, it's their drug. While yours and eyes can all be hidden behind good Christian smiles, theirs is out in the open for all of us to see. But how did they get that way? They got there by doing something that they must do in order to live. And what is it? Eat. And yet what they are eating is, is they were becoming gluttonous, morbidly obese, controlled by these substances, and it is what? Killing them. 
Let me read my last statement. Is it possible that many of us, especially in America, are living morbidly obese on the things of this world while spiritually starving to death? Consume, consume, get, consume. Bigger is better, bigger is better. New car, new ride, you know, oh, new food. All these sorts of things. i got to keep up with the Joneses. All these sorts. I'm, I'm indoctrinating myself with the music that I listen to, the, the television shows that I watch, the things that I put in my body, uh, you know, uh, all, all of these sorts of things. Just get, 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 consume, 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 consume. And man, we're just swelling up on, on the gluttony and we're, we're just, our bellies are full with the things of this world. And yet we don't have, we say things like we don't have time to evangelize, we don't have time to pray, we don't have time to serve, we don't have time to read the Bible. We don't have time for MCs or Sunday morning gatherings or or all do you do you see this tension that here is that that within a specifically American Christianity is that that there is this just this um, spiritual, you know, just malnourished. We're all walking around like we're fine, but we are ultimately spiritually starving to death. We're spiritually malnourished because we don't know the Word. We, and, and Moses tells us that in Deuteronomy 8. He, he, Justin read it last week. He says, Moses, He made them hungry. God made them hungry. God made them thirst so that you would understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God the Lord. Mission Church, friends, this is the Jesus that comes. He comes to those people. He comes to you. He comes to me who are filled up on the things of this world. Just give me, just give me, give me, give me, give me, give me more. I need more, 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 more. And he says, pray fast. Study the Word. Obey. And what are all of those things? Those are one, some of many ways to feast on the person and work of Jesus. That's what fasting from food is supposed to do. It's supposed to say, well, man, I'm really hungry. And it's a parable. It's an illustration to say, this is how I should be toward my relationship with God. You ever asked a friend? I have. He lives down the road from me to join me on this diet thing. And his immediate response was, no. No. I will not do that. No. Don't ask me again. Then he got our other neighbor to join him across the street. Hey, Phil, you going to do that? No. Do not ask me to do this. I am not doing it. Right? I get it. So we don't want to have those hunger pains. But the Lord is saying, hunger and thirst for me. Crave me upon everything. See, we have all these people, man, they know the latest Christian song, songs. They're, they're at church every Sunday, but if you, have a, if you try to have a biblical conversation with them, man, they're over in left field. I mean, they're being swayed to and fro from the theology, from the politics, to all these sorts of things inside the world. You try to have a concrete understanding and relationship with them about the things of God and the Bible, and you sound like you are a lunatic that lost their ever-loving mind. I love to be in conversation and relationship with these types of people. People who really know the word. 
Like really smart people. Some of you are in this room. You're really smart. Like you're way smarter than your pastor. You like really know stuff. But I don't want to be around somebody that knows a lot about Jesus, but doesn't practice it. Like jerks who know a lot about the Bible. I've been around some of those too. Can't stand them. But man, what if we become a community of faith that we really want to devour Jesus so much? Like we're all in, all consuming Jesus. We love Jesus. We love to celebrate Jesus. He is our delight. He is our joy. We are completely satisfied inside the person and work of Jesus and we practice it. We, we, we do it in spirit and in truth. We action and affections. That these motives and actions reveal that we ultimately are all about Jesus more than anything else because that's the kind of people that Jesus came to. In the end of John chapter 6, after Jesus does all of this, it tells us, where is he preaching? Did you catch it? In the synagogue. When he has this whole thing about the bread. He's left the wilderness, got on the boat, went to Capernaum, and walked into the middle of what we would call the church. And says, you're spiritually malnourished, and you need to eat me. Mission church. He is not talking about communion here. He's not saying if you'll just take communion and let's say that you're saved. He's saying that everything within your their walk of life, that it shows and reveals that, man, Jesus is your everything. That he's your everything. That you love him. That he is the source of all of your life. That he is your everything. That he is your God. That he is the manna from heaven. He is the one that gives eternal life. And so if that's the case, you can be like Paul and say, all these other things, it's just rubbish in comparison to knowing this Jesus. It'll make you do crazy stuff. Deny yourself. It'll make you live a life of singleness if that's what God calls you to in order to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. Man, it'll cause you to pick up from, you know, jobs. You make over a hundred something thousand dollars a year and go and live in some foreign country to share the gospel. It will say, and, and as you drive your kids to Atlanta International Airport and to say, I love you, never see you again, but I'm so proud that you're going to be a missionary in a foreign field. Why? Because Jesus is the goal. Jesus is God. So what are you eating? What are you consuming? Don't let your belly be your God, as Paul says in Philippians. Let's worship Jesus as God. Will you join me? Will you come to this table? Spur one another on, consume Jesus. Let's be that people. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you.